Coming up on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast, fellow Sark Fighter Wade Tomlinson's lungs are way below capacity. Yeah, so the, the, I've, I've had it now for nine years or been diagnosed for nine years. Wade is a walker. He walks miles and miles every day. But will it be enough? Uh, to the listeners out there, uh, I've heard a lot of your, I think I've, I think I've listened to all your podcasts. The, the theme I hear from all of us is in order to, you have to use it in order to keep it. So the more we can, like you say, ride your bike. Uh, for me, I've already walked, I just got through walking 6,000 steps. I try to get around 15 to 20,000 steps a day. My interview with Wade Tomlinson coming up on the FSR Sark Fighter Podcast. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello and welcome. This is episode 81 of the FSR Sark Fighter Podcast. I'm your host, John Carlin. This episode is brought to you by ATAR Pharmaceuticals. To learn more about their new pulmonary sarcoidosis trial, EVSOFIT, visit stopsarcoidosis.org slash ATAR trial, and there will be a link in the show notes. Also, join a community of sarcoidosis leaders by becoming an FSR Global Sarcoidosis Clinic Alliance volunteer. FSR needs people impacted by SARC to work alongside the newly launched FSR Global Sarcoidosis Clinic Alliance. Volunteers can apply to become either community outreach leaders who will work together to share their sarcoidosis stories with the public and empower others and raise awareness, or support group leaders who will work in teams of two to facilitate in-person support group meetings at these FSR Clinic Alliance member locations, and they are spread across the country. Learn more by visiting the FSR website, and again, there will be a link in the show notes. Interesting weekend, sarcoidosis-wise. I am recording today on February 19th, 2023, and yesterday was one of the sarcoidosis town halls. It was hosted by FSR, and they asked me to moderate. So thanks to the FSR team for including me in what was, I mean, a fascinating discussion. And I'm going to skim some of the high points for you. Uh, I don't want to tell you too much, but I want to tell you enough that you want to dig in and listen to this because it, it got a lot more granular than what I will share with you right now. But essentially, the intent was to dissect and deconstruct and hold up to the light the whole clinical trial process. What does it take to put on a clinical trial? Say if if you're a pharmaceutical company, and from various perspectives, what works and what doesn't. There are so many things to take into account from the perspective of the pharmaceutical company, from the perspective of the doctors, and of course, from the patient's perspective. And so we had people representing all of those different areas, as well as FSR. Bill Gerhardt, who is the CEO of Kynavant, talked about the tens of millions of dollars, literally, it takes to bring a drug through the whole clinical trial process. Uh, he also mentioned that sarcoidosis is a particularly difficult disease to find participants for in a clinical trial. I would have thought it was equally difficult uh, among all diseases and all orphan diseases, but he actually said that sarcoidosis is particularly difficult. Uh, he pointed out that uh, without people participating, the company's chances of getting FDA approval are slim and none, and he said there basically are no second chances. There's not enough money to go through the process twice. So you queue it up, you do your initial round of testing. If a drug looks promising, then you find out if it's safe, then you go to phase two, then you go to phase three, and so forth and so on. But it's not like you can just start over if you can't get enough people to participate in the clinical trial. So it is critical for the success of the drug that people step up and participate. Well, so then you talk about, well, what's it like from the patient perspective? Well, fellow SARC fighter Gary Farrow was also on the panel, and she is a big-time volunteer with the FSR, and she's been on this podcast as well. She talked about the concerns that patients have when it comes to participating. I mean, and these are just everyday things that we all have to think about. 
For instance, and these are not big philosophical questions, how far do I have to drive if if I'm going to participate? Where is the clinic that's doing this? What is the time commitment once I get there? How many days of work will I miss? What do I do about childcare? Gary in particular mentioned she has to find a pet sitter whenever she does it. And then, of course, there are some more philosophical things and, and, and something that might come to you right off the bat if you're looking at this. Um, are you putting yourself at risk by participating in a trial with an as yet unproven drug? Let's say your medication is working. Do you want to stop taking the drug that's working in order to participate in the trial? I mean, that's that's a perfectly legitimate question, right? On the other hand, uh, Dr. Divya Patel was on the panel, and uh, she's also been on the podcast before. She's absolutely wonderful, by the way. Um, she talked about the need for more drugs and more options for patients. Prednisone, methotrexate, you know, then what? Then what? Does Remicade work? Does Remicade hurt your liver uh, after a certain amount of time? Uh, what about uh, Imuran? I mean, all these different, but there's a limited menu, right, as, as we've discussed, and, and I didn't mention all of the drugs, but but you get what I'm talking about. The, the physicians want to have more options for their patients, and right now there are very few. In fact, at this point, while I'm speaking to you, there are uh, I don't think there is a single drug that has ever been developed specifically for sarcoidosis. Everything that's out there is something that has worked for similar diseases and has has been shown to be effective in one way or another in treating sarcoidosis. Um, but she pointed out that the patients actually get more care and they see their doctors more often when they're in a clinical trial. So instead of going to see your doctor every six months, you might go every three months, etc. And she also pointed out that you can quit a trial. Right? You can, If it's not working out for you, you can quit. And if your health takes a turn for the worse, you will be treated appropriately and immediately. And that's why the doctors see you so often. And then FSR's CEO, Mary McGowan, came in and talked about sort of like looking down on everybody's perspectives from 20,000 feet about FSR's role and how to try to facilitate everything to make it work. Of course, she reiterated that we need more medicines. We need to keep these companies engaged that is in all of our collective best interest to have companies interested for the first time really ever relatively speaking to um to try and find sarcoidosis specific drugs and in fact there are now nine clinical trials underway when i started this podcast there was only one all right, and that was just a couple of years ago. So now nine clinical trials in the field, but they're recruiting people for those clinical trials. So we got to get people to say yes. And and from your perspective, you've got to be able to say yes. Now, the companies and the doctors uh, do need to make it as easy as possible for people to enroll. Mary, Mary made that point over and over. She said we need to acknowledge the participants. That got lots of claps on the, on, you know, the little clapping emoji that comes up on a Zoom call when she said that. Uh, and then basically, we, we need to take a process that works. I mean, clinical trials have been around for a long time. There is a model. But what we have right now needs to to maybe roll along just a little bit better. We need to take some of the issues out of it for patients, for the pharma companies. If the pharma companies, uh, you know, if there's something else they can do or doctors can do to make it easier for people to participate, then we need to look at those things, right? And the goal is to get all of this out on the table, to get the talking points out there and figure it out. Now, by the way, there was no, no disagreement from anyone about any of this. There's, this was not a situation where people were finger pointing and saying, you know, you patients don't try hard enough, or you doctors don't care, or you big pharmaceutical company, you know, all you want is, you know, to is to get your drug approved. Now, there was none of there was none of that. Okay, uh, and and I, I feel badly even suggesting that anybody might have a negative feeling. This was a very proactive conversation about how do we get to the bottom of this, what's going to work. But at the end of the day, we still need people to step up. We need patients to participate and help advance the science 
when it comes to sarcoidosis. And this is somewhat of a humorous takeaway, and I'm making light a little bit of a very serious situation. But, you know, you listen to all these different things. And I go back because I look at this primarily from the patient perspective, you know, having sarcoidosis myself. And I heard uh, Gary talking about, I need a pet sitter. Right, I gotta have a I I gotta have somebody watch my dog if I'm gonna go away, you know, for a day or for an overnight stay, and I can't go unless I've got a pet sitter. And so, you know, on the one hand, you've got these pharma companies who have have investors and scientists and and all the things that they have, and they're talking about how it takes maybe a hundred million dollars or more to successfully bring a drug through the process and it may come down to can somebody get somebody to watch their dog in order to make this happen but you know that's i mean it's kind of it's kind of funny at some level but that's that kind of stuck out to me you know and maybe and for all i know they already do this um Maybe that's one of the things that comes up. It's like, okay, well, we've got to fund people's travel. We may have to uh, help them with their days off from work if they miss too many days in order to participate. And guess what? We may have to establish a fund so that people can pay the pet sitter so they can come and participate in the trial. At any rate, uh, this was a wonderful town hall. I was so honored to be asked to moderate that. It was recorded. It will be available on the FSR YouTube channel very soon, and I will add a link in the show notes as soon as I have that link. That was a Saturday event. Today is Sunday, and so uh, it's it's been the weekend, but I would expect that that would be up very, very soon. And we are also talking about releasing the entire Town Hall's audio as a bonus episode here on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast, so look for that as well. But I would encourage you to check it out. Real quick, uh, boy, today was a beautiful Sunday here in Virginia. I got out and rode my bike about 15 miles on the Greenway in Roanoke. It was beautiful to be outdoors doing my thing. Some of the flowering trees and the daffodils here are already blooming. Spring is coming very early. I would say I don't remember the flowering trees like the red buds and the tulip trees blooming in February ever. Usually that is a mid-March thing. So I would say several weeks early. But having said that, it was gorgeous to be out there today. But I got to tell you that taking off the winter from riding outside because of the weather and and whatnot, fitness-wise, I can feel it. And I'm a little bit panicky that I won't be able to get it back. That's something that Sark does to me. I used to know, okay, when the good weather gets here, I'll get back on the bike. Everything will be fine. But every year you're thinking, hmm, I'm another year older and sarcoidosis has been around. Am I going to be able to get it back? And I assume that I will. I hope that I will. But you never know. Okay. Coming up uh, today, a Sark finder who reached out to me after listening to the podcast. Wade Tomlinson is a teacher in Connecticut. He is fit. Wait until you hear how much he walks every day. And he is doing all of that with a lung capacity that is significantly diminished because of sarcoidosis. But like all of us, he is fighting the good fight, even though his doctors have told him they fear that at some point he may be a candidate for a lung transplant. And this is a younger individual. Uh, Listen to him. I think you're going to enjoy this interview. And of course, we certainly wish him all the best. But he'll be telling us about his diagnosis, his medications, and how sarcoidosis has even impacted his family life as well. So Wade Tomlinson is coming up next here on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. I feel like a zombie Just feeding and stumbling Hi. I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter podcast.
Welcome back to the FSR Sock Fighter Podcast. Wade Tomlinson is joining me now from Connecticut. Wade, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. So I understand you've listened to a bunch of these podcasts. I think I've listened to, the, to them all. I've been listening for maybe a year and a half to maybe two years, something like that. Okay. So I think I caught you when you were at like episode, I don't know, 18, 19. So I had to, a lot of catching up to do. Uh, and I think I've been pretty much current since then. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. I uh, I appreciate it. It's good to know that people are out there listening because so many people such as yourself have come forward to share their story. And, um, and it's good to know that it's making an impact. In fact, you reached out to me and you said, hey, uh, I've been listening. Uh, you asked for people who are willing to share their story. And I think I'm willing to step up and do that. So thank you to you. Uh, you, uh, you, let's, let's, uh, you dealt with immunotherapy and I want to get into that. It's not something we've discussed before. It's not necessarily related to sarcoidosis. Um, so that's a little bit of your backstory, but let's jump to the part of your life where all of a sudden you learned you had sarcoidosis. When, when was that and what did it look like? Yeah. So, uh, 2013, I started something called immunotherapy. My, I've always had this ridiculous post-nasal drip um, and a lot of congestion. My wife said, you know, well, at that time, well, yeah, she was still, yeah, definitely. We were, we were together um, and she was saying, you know, you, uh, you need to, you need to look into this. So I went to a doctor. They talked about something called immunotherapy where you get tested for everything that you're allergic to. And they, they kind of put these little dots on your arm and they, they kind of uh, find out what you're allergic to. And then when they find out what you're allergic to, they create what is called a serum that's just for you. And they, you get, I think it was um, biweekly injections uh, and they basically give you the serum. So the, the idea is that your body learns to fight, um, uh, fight the allergens. Sure. You build up antibodies, right? With, yeah. Mm -hmm, with, with different antibodies. And what I was sharing with you is that I don't know where sarcoid came from for me. Um, I, I think it is likely environmental. It could have been from this immunotherapy because my body is literally trying to react to lots of different allergens. And I'm just wondering to myself that that was one of the causes. Um, but I just, I do know that I developed a cough. I also in there, I, I, I had a strange, I had shingles, which is really, I'm very young to have shingles. Yeah. I'm not even 50 yet. So at that time I just turned 40, I had shingles. So it was like immunotherapy. For about a year then i had shingles it was right around christmas time and then i developed a cough that i could not get rid of and it got to the point where i really thought i was dying i just i was coughing hmm. hard all the time um this is 20 uh 2014 so we had a a, a three-year-old at the time um uh, my wife gave birth in 2015 so that's around the time i think she's pregnant uh it is yeah it was a very very difficult time I was desperate and I went to the doctor. I saw a pulmonologist. Uh, she did something called a bronchoscopy, bron bronchoscopy and uh, saw granulomas and diagnosed me with um, with sarcoidosis. Cough and all of that was coming from the pulmonary sarcoidosis. Yeah. So basically it was my lungs. You probably <clears throat> heard other uh, the doctors you've interviewed before talk about granulomas as the great. I think of it like a sludge, like it's a it's like a sludge-like substance that kind of coats healthy parts of your lungs. Mm -hmm. And then fluids mm -hmm. kind of get into your lungs. And the more fluids get into your lungs, my understanding is you start coughing. And I haven't heard a lot of your guests talk about the cough. For me, the cough was absolutely central and still is central to um, my experience. And for some people with sarcoid, I've, I've heard them talk about a dry cough. And I don't know that's so foreign to me because mine is so what you might call productive. And um, it's, it just, I feel like I'm just constantly getting rid of all that fluid in my lungs all the time and um, trying to clear that out. Well, it's scary that you would be talking about that because that's kind of what I'm dealing with right now. And as far as I know, I don't have pulmonary sarcoid, but I've been coughing for three weeks. I hope it's just a head cold and not, not uh, some sort of a flare. <clears throat> so so, also, you talked about having COVID, so it could be, and, and uh, you know, you've heard uh, people talk about us with sarcoidosis, our bodies react differently with, with our immune response, and then you have COVID, and then you have strange responses. I, My wife currently has COVID right now. She's 
upstairs and in bed, uh, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, I notice I'm, I'm trying to quarantine myself, but I know if I get it again, it's, it would be my second mm-hmm. time that I would likely have an even worse cough. It just seems like my body reacts differently to COVID than other people. So what, well, while we're on that, so you, this, this would, this would be the second time. When did you first have COVID? The first time it was so mild. Uh, my wife had it. <laughs> then my children had it. I was the last to get it. And you would think somebody immunosuppressed like myself would get it first, but I was the last one. And for me, the only thing I had a tingly tongue, I couldn't taste anything. And I had headaches. That was, that was it. But I, I have done some research to find if you have it a second time or even a third time, it gets your body, it just gets worse. It's harder for your body to fight. But I have had the most recent boosters. Uh, I've been very much up to date with all the all the, the shots that you need. Uh, a lot of people have been asking me like, you know, sarcoidosis, should I get the shot? Should I not? I was like, all the research says that we absolutely should be getting the vaccines and the most, you know, up-to-date vaccines every six months. So I'm very much current. So if I am fighting it, it's probably because of the vaccine. Yeah, that's good. I uh, I was ready to get my, uh, let's say I had the initial two shots and I've had one booster. I was getting ready to get the fourth booster, kind of waiting for them to figure out the, the formula for the latest variants. And that's when I got COVID. Yeah. Um, and then my doctor said, well, you should wait now because you're somewhat protected for the next few months and you probably don't want that next booster while there's so many active antibodies in your system anyway. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I'm hoping it doesn't come around and nail me again, for sure. Mm-hmm. So now you were uh, and are a very active person. So let's talk about your walking because you, in your emails, you've talked a lot to me about how many steps that you take every day. And I'm just back couple of weeks ago, I went to Disney and I was proud of all the steps that I was getting every day. And that's nothing compared to what you're doing. So what is your walking regimen? How many steps do you try to get every day? Well, it's 10 a.m. right now. <clears throat> I have about 7,000 steps. Uh, I try to get to uh, between 15 and 20,000 uh, a day. Um, if I have a complete day off, like if, my, if the wife and the kids are not here and I have everything to myself, I'm like, all right, I'm going to try and push it. And I've done as much as 40,000 steps, 41,000 steps before. Uh, that's really rare. But I, what I, what I, my belief system is you use it or lose it. So if you continue to stay in shape and you continue to try to push what your body can do, then you're more likely to not get flares and you're more likely to keep the health that you have. And I'm right on the margins. I only have a, uh, I have um, 30% lung function. So I don't have a lot of margin in my lungs, so it takes me longer to do, you know, distance walking. But I, I know that I can't afford to have any slippage because if I have any slippage, it's it's going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be worse. And we can get into what um, my doctor's recommending a, a lung transplant in my future, and we can talk about that. So, um, but I, I don't want to get to that point. I want to use the lungs that I currently have as long as I possibly can, and I. So my my goal is just to keep pushing myself as far as I can go. When you talk about all those steps, say 20,000 steps, what is that about? Five miles? I'm trying to uh, So I, it's approximately, it's a little over, for me, it's a little over uh, 2,000 steps a mile. So 20,000 is approximately 10 miles, 10 miles 10 a day. Miles. Okay. And where do you do this? Do you just have a sidewalk or a trail near your house or what is it? So I live in the forest. I live in... Uh, beautiful countryside uh, in uh, rural Connecticut. Um, right outside my house, we have the uh, uh, a, a the Audubon has a beautiful five mile loop. I do that loop. I try to do that loop, you know, once uh, at least you know three times a week. Uh, try to do it once a day if I can. Uh, I guess it keeps my dog. My I have a very active dog. I know you have dogs. I, I have a very very energetic dog, and he. He could probably go 20 or 30 miles a day. Um, he gets bored with me if I go too slow, um, but I take him out there and we do that. There's also lots of state parks in my area. I'm very, very fortunate. Um, we have some beautiful waterfalls here, uh, some just wonderful areas to hike. It's a, you know, Connecticut is a beautiful part of the country. And uh, I have access to everything from beach, uh, which is about 20 minutes to the south to you know, mountain size, just, you know, uh, 30 minutes north, and I'm in the hill country. So uh, everything around us here is 
Um, I call them mountains. My wife laughs at me. She's like, no, they're hills. And we argue about what a hill is versus a mountain. But, you know, when you have sarcoidosis, to me, everything that's uphill is a is a mountain. <laughs> well, walking over a bridge can be a challenge. Yes, it can. <laughs> so, so how do you know what your lung function is and, and what was the progression? Were, were you at 30% already when they did the, uh, the test and discovered that you had the granulomas? So in 2014, when I was diagnosed, I, I had at that point around 45% lung function off mm. my breathing test that I was doing at least, but it was very erratic. Sometimes it was like 60%. So they thought there was a lot of, a lot of tissue that could be saved. Mm. I got on prednisone as many of your guests have talked about. Mm. The problem with my doctor at the time is that that's the only prescription she gave me. She gave me a lot of prednisone. Um, I got the big moon face. I was incredibly irritable, annoyed, frustrated, angry. Uh, I, I, uh, I gained a lot of weight, um, and I had a little, I little had a little child, and uh, I look back on that. It just makes me so sad because it was like I, I really felt like I lost some really good years um, during all that. Now there are other treatments uh, that I'm aware of, but my doctor at that time either was not aware of them or didn't think they were appropriate. So my lung function over time went down because all her her only dial up was you would dial up the prednisone and then dial it back down. And then when I would have another flare, dial it back up and then dial it back down. And there was just no other treatment in her mind that was available. I did go to a different doctor later on at UPenn, um, but they kind of had the same, I mean, they had, they were interested more in diet. So I tried different diets. I know you've talked about diet um, and that, that definitely did control some of the flare ups, but you know, they're only, medication regimen at that time was the prednisone. And it wasn't until I started going to Yale University here in Connecticut. That's when I finally got uh, an expert doctor. Uh, her name is Dr. Galati. I'm going to shout her out. She's wonderful uh, at Yale University at the interstitial uh, lung uh, pulmonary uh, group there. And, uh, and there's a, you know, she was, in, she informed me of a lot of other treatment areas. So my lung function now has gone from, uh, it was at about 40% steady and now it's about, uh, it's anywhere between 30 to 35%, um, and somewhere in that area. I still have excellent oxygen diffusion for those with pulm, <laughs> with pulmonary <laughs> sarcoidosis. They don't like, I I recognize these terms. Uh, I still have good oxygenation. Uh, I'm usually within 90, 91 to 99%. Uh, so I'm very efficient for what I have, yeah. but I do have very low, um, lung function. So you were going back to 2014 you had this post nasal drip all the time and you thought it was allergies i mean were you a were, were you that kid that always had allergies i mean this is is this a lifelong thing i think it's always in fact i i think it's genetic cuz my mom had it i can she would clear her throat i don't know 50 times a day it was like she, yeah. she always had that stuff and i i i've always had that stuff you know, that crud, uh, and I just can't quite get rid of it. And mm -hmm. I think for me, it was an excess of dairy, uh, especially early on in life. Um, and I don't, I think looking back on it, like we didn't know when I, in the 1970s, lactose inco intolerant was not part of the lexicon. Right. I think I was a lot more la uh, lactose intolerant. And yet I drank the milk, I drank the chocolate milk, I drank, you know, I ate the cheeses, I, I did all the stuff. And the more I had all that that heavy, heavy dairy, and we had a lot of dairy in my house, and my mom's a, a Cajun French woman, so there was a lot of foods that were very rich in butters and oils. I think that was that contributed to having a lot more in terms of um, congestion. And you know, I just didn't know we don't we didn't know any of that stuff in the seventies and eighties. So, so when they were doing all the dots on your arm and they were testing you to, to, to develop this immunotherapy serum, they were testing for things like ragweed and, and all that type of thing. Yeah, right? so I was allergic to dust mites. <clears throat> I was allergic to certain allergens that can be found in, in goose feathers, like in your pillows, like, you know, your, the, the down that's in your pillows. Sure, yeah. I was allergic to that, that kind of, so they, they tried to they tried to angle like, okay, not only the serum, but also eliminate these pillows, eliminate this kind of dust, vacuum this kind of thing, get an air 
air filter. So they were fire, interested sure. in all those kind of things as well. And did did that work for a time? I mean, did, were you making progress? Uh, I yes and no. I mean, I certainly once I got rid of the pillows, I was like, wow, I'm not so stopped up when I wake up in the morning. That's mm -hmm. that's kind of good. Um, uh, and certainly getting an air purifier in the in the house. Um, uh, uh, we also have a dehumidifier that kind of limits the the humidity. I was like, all those things I think had a, had a had a positive benefit. Marginal gains, marginal. Yeah, gains. marginal. Okay. Mm -hmm. But then all of a sudden things got worse, right? Because now, now you transitioned at some point from, wow, I've got a runny nose and post-nasal drip and coughing all the time to I can't breathe. What what was that like? And when did you start to become alarmed and think, hmm, I need to find what what else is going on with me? Yeah, I had just turned 40 in September of 2013 by by the end of 2014, I had shingles. Uh, and it, that's just crazy because most people don't get shingles and that early. Um, yeah. And I don't know where that came from. I, I had a doctor who said, it can't be shingles. And they tested me like, but it is. I don't understand yeah. like a 40 year old getting shingles is really unusual. And I never recovered. I, it took me, it was a long recovery. I developed a cough uh, and, the, and my doctor thought it was a cough that was related to just recovering from shingles. They're like, this is really hard on your body. It's going to have to take time to work its way out. But three months in, and I was just, I was dying. And so I was referred to a pulmonologist in March of 2014. It was February, maybe February 2014. But I wasn't diagnosed until March when I finally got the bronchoscopy. And for those who don't know what that is, you you get put under and uh, they take some uh, fluid and tissue from your lungs and then they run it and they test it and they found granulomas. And once they saw the granulomas, my pulmonologist knew, oh, this this yeah. is sarcoidosis. You know, I'm just I'm just speculating here. And if there's if there are any medical professionals listening, they want to contact me at carlinagency at gmail.com and just talk theoretically, since obviously you you haven't been able to examine Wade, but just theoretically. Um, you know, sarcoidosis is notorious for the rashes that come with it. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering out loud if what they thought was shingles was actually a sarcoidosis related rash. Since that's it's so true, weird. I hadn't, I hadn't well, actually I mean, thought of that. I'm just, just I, one of the very first things that the doctors asked me when I was diagnosed is, "Have you ever had any rashes?" And at the time, I said no. And since then, I've read quite a lot about. Um, sometimes it presents as. Uh, around your ankles. And I did have a lot of irritation and sort of like little scabs around my ankles for a couple of years. Hmm. Um, and so now I look back at that and I think, wow, I wonder, I wonder if that was sarcoidosis. By the time I was diagnosed, it's too late to tell. I have, I have discussed that with my doctors at the Cleveland clinic and they think that that's plausible. So yeah. I'm not, I'm not just making stuff up here, uh, but I, I don't know for sure, but I just thinking out loud, wow. You know, because shingles is rare for somebody that young. Yeah. Well, I say my son had it when he was in his 20s, and he's a very active person, never been sickly or anything, but he had shingles. We're really? At age yeah. 20? It, it, yeah, just 2022. 20, yeah, somewhere right in there. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, so it does. I guess it does happen. So um, now what, what do you do for a living that you have the ability to go and do these hikes and get all these steps in every day? Uh, that's great. So I work at a boarding school. Uh, I am a teacher. Uh, for your listeners, I'm a teacher of critical thinking, which is uh, something that's very much needed in our society yes. today. I teach kids how to think, and we look at the intellectual standards. We just got through looking at logic and how to use logic and with premises and a conclusion and how to analyze uh, logic and and defeat propaganda, that kind of stuff. So that's that's the kind of stuff I, I do. Um, and, but I teach kids who are on the autism spectrum. Um, so my the school that I work at specializes with uh, students with uh, learning differences. I'll give a shout out to um, Franklin Academy where I work. It's uh, one of one of the best schools for what we do. Um, the kids that we typically uh, service are those who would been would have been classified as Aspergers before. It's now just called on the autism spectrum. They're very, um, very, very bright kids, um, but they need a lot of skills work. They need a, a lot of work in, you know, how to how to make friends and how to 
how to interact and how to uh, move around in society and and live independently. Uh, so it's a it's a high school and a a prep school for college uh, for those types of students. And uh, and I have time during the day. It's a boarding school, so I do work extra hours, but I do have probably more planning time than the average teacher just because of the way our day is spread out. And so I u- utilize those times if I'm if I don't have you know too much grading or too much planning to do, I'll I'll take some time and and walk. Um, uh, right now, you're able to see a picture of the area that I walk. That's my campus right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a beautiful area. It's about a it's a mile walk around the campus. And uh, I'll you know I'll I'll set my timer. It's like okay, I have 20 minutes. I think that's enough time to to do the walk because uh, it's all part of it's uphill. Then it's a kind of a flat, and then it's downhill. And, and around the pond. And I'm like, all right. So I, if I have a, that amount of time, I'll go do that. If I, if I have, you know, more than that, I'm like, all right, I'll have this amount of time. And I, I try to time it to maximize what I'm able to do. And for me, it gets all the fluid in my lung. I cough it all out while I hike. And that hmm. way when I teach, I'm not coughing because I find that very distracting for the students, but also embarrassing for myself. So if I know I'm going to have students, I usually have uh, a period in the day where I have them back to back. And I'm like, you know, I need to have at least one mile to get all kind of work all that stuff out. And then when I can come to class and I can, I can be, I can be there for them. Of course, I'm sure that most of our listeners uh, are pulmonary SARC patients because that's the most common type. I, I'm curious about you walk and you get the fluid out of your lungs and then it stays out for a well while until the next time you walk. Is that is that what I hear you saying? Yeah, that's basically how it works. I mean, some days it's heavier than others. I I've heard you talk about the diet that you're on. I find so I I was a vegetarian for many years. Okay. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that's the odd thing about me having this disease is that I've never smoked. I've always been healthy. I've always been active. I was a basketball player. I was a water polo player. I was a mountain biker. Uh, I mean, I was just incredibly athletic. And so I, I feel like I'll be the most unlikely person to get this. And um, I just I just find that I'm I, I have a I have the need to exercise anyway, but also I I because of the fluid that builds up in my lungs, if I can just have any kind of exercise it gets all that stuff out and then I'm able to to do what I need to do. How much do you mourn the loss of life you once had? Mm, that's such a good question, John. Um, I was just on my, I have a, a, not really a therapist, a coach. And I talk to him uh, about every other week. Um, and that's what we were just talking about last night. Um, it's hard. There's no other, <laughs> there's no other way to put it. I, uh, I've never been one to, learn how to grieve. Uh, I've always kind of like, um, I've just pushed away sadness. Uh, and I'm learning to kind of invite that sadness in because it's like, you know what, I'm living with this. This is something that is my, this is my day-to-day experience. And it's, it's sad. It really is. Uh, it's very sad for me. Cause I, uh, I feel like I have so much more to give in life. I have so much more, uh, to offer. I also have young kids. My kids are uh, ages seven and 11 and, um, I want to, I want to be there to see if they have grandchildren, if they have children. I mean, um, so I, I, I do mourn, um, the loss that I've, I've, I've suffered, uh, in terms of, um, my activity and what I'm able to do. I used to be able to get on a dance floor and really mix it up. And now I can't do any of those dance moves. I can't do it. If I did one of those dance moves, I'd have to sit in a corner and breathe heavily for half an hour. I, I just can't do it. Um, so uh, and that to me is it, you know, it's reinforced every time I try something. I played basketball with my nephews and I <laughs> we basically just had to play like 21 or something because I couldn't I can't run. Um, I just can't do it. I want to. My my mind wants to. The rest of my body wants to. Uh, and that's another difference. I, I want to just say for the listeners, um, they often say sarcoidosis comes with friends. <laughs> I don't have those friends. I don't have anything else. I don't have the diabetes. I don't have asthma. I don't have any of the other associated things that come with sarcoidosis. So really there's nothing else holding me back except for the loss of my lungs and my lung function. 
And so are your doctors saying it's likely to get worse? It must be if they're saying at some point lung transplant. So they said I'm young and healthy. Uh, I'm about to turn 50 this year. And they said I'm young and healthy. And so I'd be an excellent candidate for a lung transplant should my lungs get any worse. So I, I don't remember what the number is. I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20% lung function. If I get down to like 15 to 20% lung function, that's that's when they're going to want to do um, a double lung transplant. Um, and that's that could, so if I'm, you know, just, just looking at the numbers, if I'm 49 now, you know, looking in the future, let's say I have a bad flare up within the next five to 10 years. Well then, yeah, that that's, that's where we're going to be at. What does a flare feel like? How do you know it's coming on? I don't know. And I would love to hear from another listener or another person you interview what that feels like. Because when I know when I'm feeling not great, I don't know if it's a flare. I never know. Um, I know that I had significant trouble in 2018. And I, I think that is the moment where I went from 40, let's say 40% lung function down to 30 I had some kind of significant decrease, but to to characterize it in words, I it's hard for me to. I just know that I had more coughing. It was a little harder to to hike that hill. You know that it was just a little harder to do everything. I think for me, it was very gradual. It wasn't like I've heard some other people in your podcast talk about. They knew they knew exactly when. For me, it was very very gradual, and I was like, you know, I think I need to see the doctor. Like I. I don't know. Something doesn't feel right, mm-hmm. but it wasn't a a one event kind of thing. What are you taking medications wise right now? Oh well, I'm I got the moon face right now because they bumped me up on prednisone because I had the, a stomach bug recently and it was just harder for me to breathe. I had a lot more wheezing in my chest. My doctor kind of did the stethoscope said, "Wow, you got a lot of stuff in there. Let's blow that out." So I'm uh, I'm on thirty per, uh, thirty milligrams of prednisone right now coming down off of 40. Um, and uh, so I'm usually I'm on about five to 10 milligrams of prednisone. Uh, for your listeners, I haven't heard them talk about OFEV, that's O-F-E-V, but OFEV is a drug that prevents you from getting worse. Uh, for those mm-hmm. of us with pulmonary sarcoidosis, it's a brand new drug. It's incredibly expensive, but um, I kind of worked out a deal with the pharmaceutical um uh, group that makes it so that they charge the, you know, the insurance. And I, I don't, I don't have to pay myself. Like they, they basically create a benefit for me to help right. pay my portion of it. And oh. OFIP just doesn't, doesn't, doesn't allow me to get worse. It's, it's basically a, a, the idea of it is it's a blocker to sure. block, block me from getting worse. I, I have not heard of that. And that surprises me because a lot of this stuff trickles into my inbox. OFEV. Yep, yeah, O O F E V, OFEV. Okay. It's a brand new drug. It came out, I want to say September of last year. I think it was approved. So it really is brand new. I think it's like a hundred thousand dollars a year. But they do work Ooh. with their patients to, 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 to mitigate the cost. So that, uh, you know, I could I could never afford anything like that. But they make it so that the individual, whatever our copays are, they they cover it. Um, they in fact they gave me a their own credit card, their own, uh, it's like a health savings account card. And sure. so that when my renewals come up, it just goes onto that card and then they they pay the cost that I would normally have to. It's like a subsidy so right. that I can, I can take it. And I would have, I'm thinking that that drug, since I haven't heard of it, is, is targeted to people with various forms of lung disease as opposed to a sarcoidosis specific drug. Yes. Yes, it's for I don't remember interstitial fibrosis. I think is the, okay. the yep. term. Yeah. So and it's so it's wider than just sarcoidosis. It's for mm-hmm. anybody who has any lung function problem. Um. And uh, yeah, it came across. So my doctor heard about it. Like I said, Doctor Galati, she's terrific. Uh, she heard about it and she said, I really want to get you on this drug because we don't want to get we don't want to talk lung transplant before it's necessary. So, um, I'm on OFEB. I'm also on gabapentin. To kind of control the cough, um, and I'm also on something called Tessalon pearls uh, for those with pulmonary sarc. I've I've been in networking with people, and they often talk about Tessalon pearls. It's basically the it's mucinex. It's like they take the active ingredient of mucinex and the thing that makes mucinex work, and they put it in these little tiny 
golden pearls and oh. it really prevents uh, uh you know excess coughing so i still cough but it it really limits it i can have long periods and large large stretches throughout the day where i'm not coughing because of that well let's hope that other folks who are listening maybe can can reach out to their doctors and at least ask uh, good good questions and maybe maybe find some relief themselves through that mm-hmm. through critical thinking and critical argument. Yeah. <laughs> right? And John, do you take uh, supplements? I know I take uh, vitamin D and I some do. other supplements. Do you take those kinds of things as well? Yeah, I do. I do. I'm I'm on a whole litany of vitamins, and and off the top of my head, I I don't know. I take a multivitamin. I take a B complex. Uh, I take vitamin D. I'm doing uh, an omega three fish oil every day. Yeah, all I do the fish oil and, and, and a probiotic. Uh, all of those are some of those are just for general health, and some of those are things that various people along the way have indicated that it would be beneficial to me. And so I've just kind of got this cocktail I take every morning. I don't think about it that much anymore. Yeah, I'm the same way. I have it's a lot of it looks like a lot of pills because of the supplements. One of the ones that I do is uh, turmeric and ginger with cracked uh, pepper. And yep. that's supposed to limit the inflammation. And right now I'm currently drinking some green tea. So uh, those kinds of teas that bring down the inflammation. So yeah. I'm I'm very much an anti-inflammatory guy, <laughs> just trying to right. do whatever I can right. to get the inflammation down. Right. And so you've listened to my interviews with Lindsay Nuremberg, who's, uh, who had me on that anti-inflammatory diet. Yes. Um, and I, I, I have to admit that I, I felt like that worked and yet I drifted. Um, on the other hand, the holidays are difficult. There are cookies everywhere. I just got back from a week in Key West, and that's Lucky not God. like an invitation to healthy eating lifestyle, anything. So, uh, but I'm uh, I think I'm back on my way towards a, a, a more anti-inflammatory lifestyle. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. How does your wife tolerate all this stuff going on with you and your kids? That is such a great question. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, because I think having someone in the house with my kind of lung function, um, knowing that a lung transplant may be in my future, that is really hard on the spouse. And my kids, it's interesting. Sometimes I just think they're clueless. And then other times they'll say something and they're really profound. I'm like, oh crap, you're really, you're thinking about this too, you know? Um, uh, so it's hard, I think on, on the people who love you. Um, because they see you suffering, you know, I, I do, I try to hide it. I don't know how other people, um, deal with it, but I try to hide the cough, but I can't, I'm so it's once it comes on, it's loud. It's, you know, I, um, (laughs) the dog comes up and tries to lick me. He knows something's going on. Uh, you know, it's, it's tough on the spouse, um, because, you know, she wants to care for me, but at the same time, wants to give me space. It's embarrassing for me. Um, and so uh, I think that would be a great episode, I think, to do with somebody. I know you in the past, you actually had uh, a couple on and, a, you know, somebody as a spouse who who came on, but it'd be really good to have, I think, an expert to talk about how spouses get through this, because that I just find that when I hear her perspective, you know, she's like, you know, I'm mar- I, I wanted to marry a healthy, active guy. I, I, I married somebody who I thought I could take hikes with and run with. She's a runner. Um, you know, I, I could do all these things with. And now we've lost that. So, you know, now what? Um, and it's I think it's uh it's I think it's harder on spouses, perhaps in some ways, because they have to watch us suffer than it is on the person who's actually going through it. I, I just wonder about that. I I and I and for me, I don't know how other people internalize it. I just feel a lot of guilt. Um sadness and guilt like gosh i feel like i'm letting her down uh she didn't sign up for this you know this is not what she wanted um and it's certainly not something i want my kids to have to to see um i did have a doctor who told me like this makes kids tougher this helps them see that you know life is fragile it's precious and it is uh it's something that you need to value Uh, so they said this is a positive for kids but for me it's still it's a it 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 hurts me to think of them seeing me suffer. I want to thank you for sharing your story. And uh, I do appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, John. I really appreciate it. I feel like a zombie. 
Thanks to Wade for being willing to come on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast and share his story with me. Let's hope all those steps he's taking pay off and that he can stay ahead of what he's facing and perhaps he will never need that lung transplant. The official Sark Fighter song called Zombie by Mark Steyer and his band, the White Hot Lizards. Uh, you can hear Mark's story, the story behind the lyrics, back in episode 12. Man, that seems like a long time ago. And occasionally I will play the entire song for you at the end of an episode. In fact, you can hear it at the end of episode 80, which is the one just prior to to this one. But he is a fellow Sark fighter and he wrote the lyrics because he was suffering from what we are all suffering from here with sarcoidosis, just in our own unique snowflake ways. As I'm speaking today, yes, once again, my trusty dog Dougal is curled up in the chair in my office. Dougal makes my life so much better. Don't forget to follow me on social media. Just look for Sark Fighter on Facebook and Instagram. I have an indoor bicycle called a Peloton. And if you have a Peloton, you sign up for the classes and you can follow people. And if you look up Sark Fighter, you can follow me. I have a cycling blog called Carlin the Cyclist with a section devoted to cycling with sarcoidosis. If you are new here and just trying to figure out what sarcoidosis is, go back and listen to episode two with Dr. Simon Hart. My story is episode one. The backstory to the founding of FSR is episode 11 with Andrea and Redding Wilson. Andrea being the Sark fighter there, but they started the foundation right at their kitchen table. If you would like to let me know how you're doing or just talk about the podcast or whatever, and I get all kinds of emails, and I really look forward to those. I got to tell you, send me an email, carlinagency at gmail.com, and there's a link in the show notes. And I just want to tell you, I so appreciate your interest in the Sark Fighter podcast. It helps me reach more people and grow the show. If you share it on your social media, if you like it, Please tell just one person and give the show a nice review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your downloads. Until next time, keep fighting. Learn to suffer, you feel pain someday. Learn endurance, your strength will fade away. Dead man walking.